Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. This week, we return to our listener library for an episode of suspense entitled The Long Night. One of radio's most prestigious and longest-running shows, Suspense premiered on CBS in 1942 and continued to thrill audiences until its final broadcast in 1962. The show quickly gained a reputation for its mastery of the genre, attracting some of radio's greatest talents, such as the star of today's episode, Frank Lovejoy. Frank Lovejoy's gravelly voice and no-nonsense delivery was perfectly suited for radio. Over the span of two decades, Lovejoy appeared in hundreds of programs, from soap operas to mystery thrillers. Although best remembered for his role as crime reporter Randy Stone in the 1950s radio series Nightbeat, Lovejoy played prominent roles in several other series, including Dan Garrett in the first 13 episodes of the superhero serial The Blue Beetle, and the narrator on the first year of the true crime drama This Is Your FBI. In the 1950s, Lovejoy made the transition to film starring in I Was a Communist for the FBI, which inspired the radio series of the same name. Lovejoy also appeared in a number of film noir classics, most notably In a Lonely Place, starring Humphrey Bogart, and The Hitchhiker, directed by Ida Lupino, widely regarded as the first American film noir helmed by a woman. The Long Night was based on a short story by Lowell D. Blanton, first published in the October 1956 issue of Atlantic Monthly. It was adapted for suspense by Sam Pierce and broadcast just a few weeks after the story's initial publication. The Long Night won an O. Henry Award in 1957, and suspense presented their adaptation again in 1958. Both versions starred Frank Lovejoy. And now let's listen to The Long Night from Suspense. Originally broadcast November 18th, 1956. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Take a deep breath and let it out slowly. And once more. No, this is not a caprice. It is a thoughtful precaution. Fill your lungs well now, for you will be holding your breath for the next 30 minutes as you live through the long night with Frank Lovejoy. A tale well calculated to keep you in... This is United Core 4, 10,000 over outer range. Request lower altitude over. United 404, this is Rockford Tower. Maintain present altitude until further advised. Over. United 404, Roger, Rockford. Over and out. Rockford Radio, this is Delta 318, over. Delta 318, this is Rockford Radio. Go ahead. Delta 318, request permission to radio. I'm over Milford Hills at 4 
5,000. Over. Delta 318. Straight you stand in the airport stranded. control tower, 90 feet up in the sky over Rockford Field, waiting to go on the night watch. And you'll listen to the babble of voices that fill the crowded room in an endless series of requests. Request for altitude change, request for landing permission, request for the weather. Here is the 9 o'clock weather. Low stratus clouds over the entire Mississippi Valley, spreading out over the central states. Visibility 2 miles, ceiling 2,200 feet and lowering steadily. Clouds, smoke, haze, and fog, and a ceiling getting lower every minute. You look out through the tinted glass windows into the misty night, and you think of the strangers overhead, in and above the clouds. And you wonder if they, too, feel the hush as the long night begins. You wonder if the strangers, with the throb of engines and the harsh rasp of many voices in their ears, can feel the stillness. You look around the tower room, you look and you listen to the voices... And you're glad every time a ship touches down safely on the long, light-lined runways. Okay, Brother Ken, you can have it. For me, it's been a long day. Traffic been heavy? It started sort of slow, but it's building up. I got three converging on the outer marker and two inbound on the range. It's all here on the board for you. Yeah, okay. They're beginning to stack up over Chicago, but uh, that's their worry. Yeah, and they can have it. Yeah. Well, happy landing, man. Yeah, so long, Charlie. Night, Charlie. Hello, TWA 70. This is Rockford. We have straightest clouds, ceiling of 2,000, visibility under two miles. Smoke, haze, and fog on the ground over. What is your traffic there, Rockford? Five inbound inside the 20-mile range, one conveyor, and two DC-7s outbound on the red. Over. Okay, Rockford. Uh, this is TWA 70 requesting change of flight plan to land your field instead of Chicago. Roger, TWA, I'll notify Chicago and clear you in. Give us a call when you pass the Milburn Hills. Rockford out. Roger, thanks very much. Give Chicago a call, Mike. Tell them their Flight 70 is terminating here. Okay, Ken, we'll do. Chicago, Rockford Radio. Rockford, Rockford Tower, this is Beechcraft Bonanza N91457. Hello, Beechcraft N91457, this is Rockford Tower. I've been homing on your range and apparently my automatic direction finder isn't working right. I think I'm lost. Stand by, 457. Check the flight file, will you, Mike? See if he's on it. All right. Hello, Rockford. Are you hearing me, Rockford? If you are, please give me a call. This is Rockford. We're reading you fine, Beach. Hold on a second. Find anything on it, Mike? Nope, there's nothing here, Ken. No flight plan. Okay. Hello, Beechcraft N91457. This is Rockford Tower. What seems to be the trouble with your ADF? I don't know exactly, Rockford. I'm not too familiar with this equipment. But I don't think it's working right because I've been changing from one range to another just like I was told to. And I ought to have been somewhere over Minneapolis long ago. And I'm not. All right, Beechcraft. We'll work something out for you. Where are you flying from? Indianapolis. Headed on a direct flight to Minneapolis? That's right, Rockford. I set my automatic direction finder just exactly the way I was told to when they installed it. Did you make any visual checks against what your ADF showed? I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Did you check your course when you passed over the airways range stations by looking at visual ground objects like signs on the top of oil tanks telling you what city you were over, anything like that? No, I'm afraid I didn't. I thought my ADF was working, so I didn't think about anything else. Okay. Now, what was your last known position? Last known... Well, uh... I'm trying to think. I guess the last time I positively knew where I was was when I departed Indianapolis. What time was that? About 5.30, uh, 
Maybe 545. 5.30? Uh, verify that time. That would be more than three hours en route. You should be well out of my range. Yeah, I know. But I've been circling for more than an hour, trying to make the ADF work and looking for Rockford. What is your remaining fuel supply? Well, uh, I guess there's no use kidding myself. I, I think I've got about 45 minutes, maybe at the very best, an hour. Well, here is the situation. The weather here is solid overcast at 600, visibility one mile in smoke and haze. Do you see any towns, rivers, highways that you can identify? No, I can't see anything but clouds. I'm on top. Holy smoke, did I hear that right? Yes, you did. Beechcraft, did you say you were on top? That's right, on top of a solid layer. Have been for a long time. At what altitude? I'm, uh, I'm at 5,000 indicated. About 1,000 above the clouds. Uh, 457, take a good look around you. Are there any breaks in the overcast? Can you see any holes, any thin spots in the area at all? No. No, it's solid. It's a completely solid layer. Are you an instrument pilot? What do you mean? I mean, are you checked out on instruments? Do do you have instrument training? No. No, I've never been on instruments in my life. I'm just lost. You look at the clock, 9.04. You look at the clock and mentally give yourself 45 minutes. 45 minutes to find him, bring him in, and get him on the ground. You check the latest weather chart and you don't like what you see. Your mouth feels dry. You reach for a cigarette as you punch the mic button and do the next thing that must be done. Rockford Tower to all planes working this frequency. We have an emergency. Repeat, we have an emergency. Please maintain radio silence on this frequency until further notice. Out. A Rockford Tower to Beechcraft, N91457. Come in, 457. Okay, Rockford. Tell me, how did you get on top? Indianapolis, I climbed straight out to 5,000, and later, while I was trying to get the ADF working, I found myself on top. It, it just happened. Yes. Are you familiar with range orientation? No, I don't know anything about that either. I'm just a businessman with a new airplane. I know only enough about the radio to tune in the stations. I know I'm lost, though, and need help. These gas tanks aren't getting any fuller. Yes, I know, 457. I understand. Sure, you understand, but he doesn't. He knows he's lost and he needs help. He understands that. But he doesn't know what the odds are on getting him straightened out and over the field and then getting him down through that solid layer of clouds. You fight down a sudden urge to push the microphone button and scream at him. To tell him that nobody forced him into an airplane he hardly knew how to fly. Nobody forced him to take off on a long night cross-country in weather suitable only for experienced professionals. But you know there's no time for hindsight. There's hardly any time for hopes. So you push the black button and you try to sound calm. Hello, 457. This is Rockford Tower. Now, listen to me carefully. Are you reading me okay? Yeah. Hello, Rockford. I'm hearing you fine. Loud and clear. All right. Now I'm going to try to get a fix on you, but... Before I do, I want you to know what the situation is. 
I'm sure I can find you. I'm reasonably sure I can get you over the airport before you're out of fuel. I am not sure, though, that we can get you on the ground. Do you understand? No, no, I don't understand. I'm lost, and I'm about out of gas, and I don't understand why we're wasting time talking about it. You get me over an airport, and then we'll worry about getting on the ground. All right, but you understand this. It's my job to help find you. It's my job to help you find the airport, and I'll do everything I can to get you on the ground. But flying that airplane through those clouds will be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Do you understand that? Okay, I understand. Now, what are we going to do? Now, we're going to orient you by radio and bring you in over the Rockford Airport. I will tell you what must be done, but you have got to do it. I can't fly your airplane for you. Do you understand? Yeah. Okay, Rockford. I understand. You know the standard procedures for range orientation. You've run over every step of them a million times for just this kind of emergency. That's one of the reasons you're up here in this modern Tower of Babel on these long nights. But you've got two strikes against you on this one. Time, you read the clock at 9.07, and a fool in an airplane. Hi, Mike. Yeah, Ken. Get your cargo control center on the horn. Ask them to set up an alert of all facilities within 100 miles. Roger. Oh, you better get them to clear all altitudes in the area below 6,000 feet. Okay, we'll do. You know, I don't know whether to try to get him down through the clouds now and then try to bring him in or whether to get him over us on top and then let him down where we won't lose radio contact if he gets too low. Well, it's souped up all across the valley, Ken. You might get him down through it, but if he's too far out, he'd have no chance of getting here under the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, and if I don't get him started, it's something he'll be out of fuel anyway, and it won't matter. Uh, I'm going to bring him in on top. Okay, I'll check weather very closely, Ken. If I hear of any breaks, I'll give it to you. Good, thank you. Hello, 457, this is Rockford Tower. Yeah, okay, Rockford. I'm going to speak very distinctly. And if you don't understand any part of what I tell you, come in and break me off. It's vital that you understand me. Is that clear? Yeah. Okay. Now, I want you to listen very closely to my range signal. Put everything else out of your mind. Listen and describe exactly what you hear. Okay. Hello, Rockford. I hear a code sound. Is that the range? That's right. What does it sound like? Well, it's, uh... It goes... Da-dit... Okay, four, five, seven. Now, is it loud or soft? It's pretty loud. Okay, that's the N quadrant. Now, I want you to tune to the Madison, Wisconsin range and tell me what you hear. Okay, wait a minute. Yeah, uh, hello, Oxford. I- I've got the Madison range. What does it say? It's just like the other, only backwards. Uh, da-da, da-da. That's right. I can hardly hear it, but it's there, all right. Yeah, okay, 457. That's the A quadrant. Now I want you to try Peoria and then Chicago. Rockford, Madison, Peoria, Chicago. Four corners to check from. Four radio sounds that you hope he's reading correctly. You finish the check and he comes through without a bobble, and you know you have him fixed. You know at least his direction from you. You take a deep breath and for the first time you feel a tiny flicker of hope that you're going to find your stranger and get him in all right. But you're a long way from home. 
and you'll light another cigarette and push the black microphone button hard. Now listen carefully, 457. I'm going to run a check procedure on you. I want you to take up a northeast heading, turn your volume down as low as you can, and still receive my range signal. At the very moment you detect a change in signal strength, either higher or lower, advise me. All right, Rockford. I'll do my best. I'm not sure that I... I'm not at all sure. Hello, 457. Can you hear me? Do you hear me, Beechcraft 457? Rockford. Yes, I read you now. I lost you for a second, but I hear your range signal now. Did you get all of my last transmission? I think so. I think I can do it. Hello, Oxford. My gauges indicate empty tanks. There's some gas left, I know, but I have no idea how much. Do you know where I am? I'm quite sure of your direction from me, and I believe I know how far out you are within, say, 20 miles. If what you've told me is correct, I estimate you have 30 minutes fuel remaining. I believe your gauges are indicating normally. Now... Try to concentrate on doing just what I've told you to do. Yeah. Okay, Rockford. I don't want you to think I'm ungrateful. I realize you can't afford mistakes. But I can't last much longer. I'm not trying to hurry you, but the gauges say empty, and my son is getting sick. You didn't say anything about having any passengers aboard. How many are there of you? Just my son and me. Is the air rough? Is there turbulence? But you said your son is getting sick. Yes. You see, he's only nine, and he's getting scared. That's what's making him sick. You don't say anything for a long minute. You just stare out into the miserable night, and your thoughts are not nice. You think of your own kid, and you thank God he's home safely in bed. And you know now, if you didn't know it before, that you've got to bring these strangers home. You reach for the microphone button, but before you push it, the voice is back. What's happened, Rockford? I can't hear you anymore. Did you hear me? I was talking to you. You didn't answer. Hello, Rockford. Come in, please. I'm reading you. 457, I heard everything you said. Now listen to me carefully. You should be approaching my west course close into the station. I want you to listen closely and describe any change in your signal. I won't call you. You call me when you hear anything change. Okay, Rockford. Hello, Rockford. The signal is much louder now, and I'm getting more of a continuous tone in my earphones, although I can still hear that other signal. All right, 457. That's fine. That's good. Now, listen carefully. Turn your volume down a little more, and when you no longer hear that other signal, and when the continuous tone is loud and clear, and when you hear nothing but the continuous tone... At that time, I want you to turn right to a heading of nine three degrees magnetic. Is that clear? I, uh... Yeah, I think so. You think so? You've got to know so. When you hear nothing but a tone, when there's nothing but a loud buzz in your ears, I want you to turn right to nine three degrees on your compass. Do you understand me? Yes, I understand. Turn right to ninety... Uh, to nine three degrees on the compass... When I hear a loud tone. That's correct. The tone is strong now. I don't hear the other signal. 
Nothing but the tone. Shall I... Yes, turn right, turn to 9-3 degrees and advise. Advise? Advise when on course, when on 9-3 degrees, advise. Uh, Roger. Advise when on... I'm on course now, on 93. All right, good. Chicago Control Center has everything cleared on the 6,000. They're monitoring the calls, too. Okay, Mike, thanks a lot. What's the time? Um, 9.40, straight up. 9.40? That's 12 minutes to make it in. Hello, 457. You're approaching the range now. You're almost over the station. The range is about two miles from where I'm sitting. The signal you hear will continue to increase in volume until you cross the range. At that time, it will fade out quickly. For a moment, you may hear nothing. Then it will increase again rapidly. Now, at the very instant your signal fades, I want you to make an immediate left turn to a heading of four or five degrees magnetic. Take that heading and advise. Understand? I understand. Mike, get on the phone and alert the local police and fire departments. Tell them what we've got and to be on the lookout for a fast move. Roger. Get all the lights on in the field. The runway markers. When we get him down through this, he won't have any time to spend looking for the field. Okay, will do. That is, if we get him down through it. You light another cigarette. You watch the clock on the desk. You try to keep your mind clear, to think ahead, to think of everything that can possibly happen. And the waiting is worse than anything yet. You keep reaching for that microphone, wanting to call him to ask him why he doesn't tell you he's over the range. And you know he hasn't called you because he isn't over the range yet. And you wait, and you wait. And then it comes loud and clear. Rockford! Rockford! I'm over the range and starting a turn. It's just like you said. It's exactly the way you said it would be. Roger, 457. You're doing fine. Now come left to 45, straight and level. Hold it until I tell you different. I'll call you back. I think you got him, Ken. Well, if he's where he ought to be, we should hear him in about 20 seconds. I'm going out to the platform and listen. Call me if he calls in. Okay. You stand on the steel grating of that tower platform and you try to hear over the sounds from the field below. You strain your ears for a sound that should come to you out of the southwest. And you've never wanted to hear anything so much in your life. And then you hold your breath. You stop breathing to hear better. And it's there. A single engine singing a quiet, sweet sound and approaching directly on course. You flick your burning cigarette out into the black space and stumble back into the tower room. You grab the mic and you almost shout into it. Four, five, seven, four, five, seven. This is Rockford. You're over the field. I hear you clearly. Start a 360 turn immediately in orbit in your present area. Beginning of 360... You snap a look at the clock, 9.46. Five, maybe six minutes more if you're lucky. Six minutes at the outside to get him lined up properly for a straight-in approach, to talk him down through 4,000 feet of solid clouds. Six minutes to bring off a miracle. You waste 15 precious seconds debating the best way to do it. All along up to now, you've planned it this way. A good, steady, full-scale power approach, nose up a little, flaps down just enough, power on exactly right. Your mind has told you that this was the ticket, the only answer. With a good steady airplane, no turbulence to speak of, well-trimmed and hands-off, he might just make it. He might. But suddenly you're not sure. Maybe if he could pull his power, slow her down, trim her slow and steady, a touch of flaps, that might be the answer. That might do it. 
It would save precious gas if he missed his approach or he goofed up in the clouds he could get back on top for another try. Maybe. You push the microphone button hard and try to sound calm. Four, five, seven, I hear you plainly. You're circling the airport. There isn't time to talk this out. You'll have to do exactly what I tell you the first time and do it right. There simply isn't time enough. Oh, wait a minute. Do you have chutes? Do you have parachutes aboard? No, no parachutes. <laughs> All right, uh, four, five, seven, we'll have to do it this way. Now listen to what I have to say. You don't have to talk, just listen. Come around to a due west heading, due west. As you do, start slowing her down. Slow her down and trim her up for a power approach. A normal power approach, do you understand? I understand, Ralph. Don't talk to me. Bring her around, head west, with the power on. Slow her down, flaps down to approach position. Trim her up, make her steady. Advise when you're headed west and slow down. Ten, fifteen, twenty... Where is he? Where is empty? Five. Four, five, seven. Are you there? Four, five, seven. I'm trying to get her steady. I'm trying to do what you told me. All right. Four, five, seven. Don't talk. Advise when on course. Rockford, I, I'm on 270 now. Slowing down. I don't know. I just don't know. I know you don't know. All we can do is try. I understand. I'm down to 80 now. Flaps down and power on. Roger. Continue trimming her. Trim her down good. Adjust your power and trim her until she's descending at a steady 500 feet per minute. That's 500 per minute. Trim her good, do you understand? Trim her so good that she will let down at 500 feet per minute with your hands off. You get that? With your hands off. I understand. Now, four, five, seven, you're going to bring her around very slowly and precisely to an east heading. You're going to handle her very gently so she won't fall off on you flying so slow. You hear me? Yes, I hear you. Let her continue to settle at 500 feet a minute. Just bring her around slowly to the east, recover, and then take your hands off the controls. She won't fly with my hands off. She will fly. She'll fly better than you can. Now listen to me. When you are eastbound, hands off. She will descend slowly into the clouds. After you're in the clouds, do not touch the controls. I don't think I... Then don't think. Do as I tell you. Now, when you get in the clouds, everything will change for you. You will think the airplane is all wrong, that it's doing everything that it shouldn't do. If you leave it alone, it will start a slow spiral to the left, but I don't think it'll be enough to do any harm until you've broken out under the ceiling. Now, whatever it does, you will think it's going to the right or up or down or even spinning, but it won't be doing any of those things unless you make it do them. Now, don't touch it. Now, are you eastbound? I'm eastbound, yes. Take your hands off the controls. But I... Take your hands off now. Okay. Hands are off. Now, let her have it. Let her fly herself. Ken, the ceiling's under 600 feet. That doesn't give him much time to recover and get his bearings when he breaks out. Oh, but... But it's all we can do. It's all anybody can do. 
You sit there waiting, only too aware of what can be happening in the cabin of Beechcraft 457, sweating out each second of time with a terrified pilot and his deathly scared kid. You wonder if this man, this stranger, and yet no longer a stranger, can keep his fantasies under control for that long letdown. The lonely, long letdown through total darkness with nothing but a great fear for a companion. A minute goes by, and another, and then... Get off those controls. Cut the throttle. I've got the throttle closed. She's slowing down fast. I can't see. I can't... Well, she's going to stall. Give her the throttle. Slowly. Keep your hands off except the throttle. She'll climb back out on top if you keep your hands off her. Two minutes wasted, more than two minutes because he couldn't believe what you told him. You had him and then you lost him. And now, if the teacup of gas still in his tanks holds out, if he gets back on top, you still have it to do all over again. You begin to feel the long night closing in on you. He's almost calm when he calls you back this time. You can almost hear his sigh of relief. Hello, Rockford. I'm back on top now. Good. Maybe we have time for one more try. Now, let's try it with the power off this time. You may lose your engine before you can get... It's no use, Rockford. It's just no use. I can't do it. I was fine until I got into those clouds. I just couldn't sit there and do nothing. I just couldn't. I know I can't do it again. Listen, there's time. There's time for another try. Forget it. The engine just quit. That's it, Rockford. Well, you can still do Forget it. Forget it. You're wasting your time. I just want to say thanks for trying. Hello, 457. Hello. Hello, Beach. Hello, 457. He can't hear you. His hands froze to the mic. Yeah. You better hit the crash button. Roger. For Rockford Tower to all planes awaiting landing instructions. The emergency is over. Normal radio procedure is now in effect. Rockford, over and out. Rockford Radio, Delta 216, request Suspense, in which Frank Lovejoy starred in The Long Night, adapted by Sam Pierce from the Atlantic Monthly Story by Lowell D. Blanton. Listen. Listen again next week, when radio's outstanding theater of thrills brings you another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed in Hollywood by William N. Robeson. Included in tonight's cast were Stacey Harris, Byron Kane, Court Falkenberg, Sam Pierce, and Jack Crucian. The original musical score was composed and conducted by Paul Barron. Sound patterns by Ray Kemper and Bill James. 
With Jack Benny and his gang back on the air each Sunday, there's just no excuse for a frown. Later on today and every Sunday, get in on the fun on the lighthearted Jack Benny Show. It's always a joy to hear. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed over most of these same stations by Indictment. from Suspense here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. That was a listener pick, and we didn't mention that in the opening. And there's a reason for that, Joshua. Well, it was Matt who asked us for a story with a tragic ending. He left it open for us to pick. And I had this on my list for a long time, and I kept thinking, oh, I don't want to be the guy who brings this bummer episode to the podcast. But then when I got Matt's email, I went, yes, I will give you a tragic ending. Why? What happened that was tragic? <laughs> Wait, they didn't live? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I rewrote it, too, where there was a delivery of marshmallows and a giant truck. <laughs> where the plane landed on that at the end, and all was good. I'm so torn there's something beautiful about this ending mm-hmm. in the sense of the tragedy of it and how badly I wanted a different ending and not necessarily happy, but more definitive, maybe. A middle ground where the father lives and the son dies. Yeah, like something. Son. <laughs> and then I go back to, well, but there is something really real and tragic about this. There's no doubt that there is suspense in this episode of Suspense. Mm-hmm. It might be the most naturalistic thing we've listened to on this podcast. Mm. There's no element of fantasy in here, and it is performed with such realism. Uh Uh-huh. It's Mm -hmm. a classic. I'm going right to the end of this podcast. It is so beautifully done. This is so riveting. It's so real. From the Foley of them being in the tower to how they problem-solve this to how mad you get at how stupid he was to take this plane up. And then when you find out the kid's in there and your anger is his anger. It feels so authentic from the moment this thing starts. This is also, I think, a rare episode where its impact may be even more now than then. Because the talking a guy down from a plane is almost a a cliche now. Yeah, Mm -hmm. We've seen that over and over and over and over again. So that we are even more trained to just expect this to be fine. How obvious is it that they brought in real tower operators to help them write this script? I learned things (laughs) about how they operate. I don't know Lowell B. Stanton. I don't know the origins of this short story. If this writer had some background in air traffic control, I couldn't find a copy of it online. I don't think it's currently in print, um, so I haven't read it, and there's very little information. But authentic is the word that keeps coming back to me. Plus, you have this added level that makes this story so effective for radio. Um, Many reasons, but I think the most significant reason is that it's a radio and play in which the main form of communication Mm -hmm. in-universe is communication via radio. Mm -hmm. It makes it feel really immediate, and you are simultaneously in the tower with Ken, the Frank Lovejoy character, 
and you're on the plane mm-hmm. uh, with the sad sack businessman pilot. To argue a little bit, I think they keep you very specifically in the tower and you only ever hear the guy over the radio. He's only ever experiencing him through that filter. That is true. But because the situation is so powerful, you can empathize. Yeah. Even though he's a serious dumbass, the guy in the plane. Yeah, like I just pointed up and went and innocent enough and now yeah. I'm in real trouble. He does not deserve the outcome of this. And the kid doesn't deserve oh. it. That secondhand account of the kid being so sick because he's so scared is just And that reveal midway is like, oh, I'm sorry, was this not horrifying enough? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've had this thought in my head from time to time, especially when I watch war movies or anything to do with war, and I think, what would I be? Which guy would I be in the war movie? Mm-hmm. Would I be the guy that freaked out? Would I be the guy that just moved and got it done? What would my reaction be to a horrific situation like that? You'd like to think you know, but you don't know until mm-hmm. you're there. I'm really fascinated by that and wanting, not wanting to know. <laughs> Do you hear me, powers that be? I don't really want to find out. <laughs> and this moment where he has to dive down through the clouds and not touch anything and just trust it and he can't do it is a really interesting, fascinating, psychological piece of writing. Yeah. And the script is such a good job setting up how your senses are going to lie to you. I would like to think that I would just go, well, I'm going to die either way, might as well die this way and just dive through the clouds and hope for the best. I would like to think that. And that's what you're screaming at the guy. Are you kidding me, dude? Just do it. If you are not jammed full of adrenaline, of course that's what you do. But when you are terrified and your child is sitting next to you and I think everything is telling you you're spinning out of control, yeah, I cut the guy some slack for not being able to do it. Mm-hmm. I would think that would probably motivate me more to dive through the clouds if my kid was sitting next to me. Like He wants to dive through the clouds, but he has to believe, despite what he's experiencing, that not touching it is diving through the clouds, as opposed to... My sense is telling me I'm not doing it, so I need to grab the wheel right. to make it happen. Leap of faith, Indiana yeah. Jones, Invisible Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. It plays on a lot of these tropes of infallible heroes, as Eric likes to always talk about. But here it puts it in this real-life situation in which you're not like, oh, it'd be great to be that heroic. Here you have to go, oh, yeah, do you would have I be any nerve different? to sit still. And it's interesting to me, uh, my second listen... In the first half of this, Ken tells you exactly what's going to happen. But that's the subversion, because most stories don't work out this way. He says, I'm sure I can find you. He does. I'm reasonably sure I can get you over the airport before you're out of fuel. He does. I am not sure, though, that I can get you on the ground. Mm -hmm. And you're so programmed to go, yeah, he will, though. That's the drama. But he's dead right a couple (laughs) minutes into the story. (laughs) It begs the question of, then why tell the story? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I go back and forth. Why did you do that to me? And thank, <laughs> thank you for doing that. Yeah. So the, the first time I listened to this, I did what you know, we do all the time. We're not supposed to. We just had it on in the background. I'm doing other stuff. Ta, 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 ta. Mm-hmm. And it gets to the ending. And it, it really was just that gun punch of like, I need to stop and sit down. And <laughs> listen to this again. No, I just need to stop and sit down. Oh. Like, <laughs> right. like, that hurt. Ow. Right. So one of the things I think to keep praise on this, is not only is it a really good episode, but it emits quality on other radio episodes around it. 
Like I now can't go listen to another radio episode just believing I know it's going to happen so readily. The metaphor that's in my head is I am told the Sex Pistols once released an album that the case was sandpaper. <laughs> so as you slide it in and out of your record collection, it ruins the records next to it. <laughs> This is the reverse. (laughs) (laughs) Please tell me that's true. (laughs) So uh, listening to this made me really appreciate I should not take stories for granted so Mm -hmm. much. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't always know what's going on. Interesting thing for me was that in my life to do this podcast, there are various ways that I have to listen to these shows. I don't have a regular schedule, so I have to kind of fit them in. And this time, for this one, I had to... Uh, listen, in the car on a commute that just happened to be here in Minnesota. These last few weeks, we've had a lot of terrible weather. I ended up driving when the snow hit uh, last week, where visibility went down to about five feet on the freeway. As he's begging him to go, <laughs> let go of the wheel <laughs> and just go through the clouds, it was surreal oh, because wow. I was driving through essentially clouds. I had no visibility. And I was at the moment just trusting those brake lights in front of me. <laughs> Don't going, suddenly take a dip. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, and keeping them at a safe distance, but not too far away. Because if I lose those brake lights, I'm going to lose all sense of where I am in the world. I mean, I couldn't see anything. And listening to this at the same time, I had a moment where I said, Perhaps I should turn this off right now. <laughs> this is I don't think the radio show is the problem. <laughs> I, I should probably concentrate a little bit more and not be freaking myself out so much. The other thing I want to mention is I'm a huge fan of Frank Lovejoy. In college, I think is the first time I started to recognize his voice in radio shows, and I figured out who he was, and Mm -hmm. I listened for him all the time. But his performance in this, I think, is really phenomenal in that he is calm the entire time, like you would need to be, yet never loses sight of the drama. Mm -hmm. He switches between this empathetic, unemotional instructions, and then has these more intense honest moments of narration uh, that lets you into what he's feeling internally. And the choice to narrate it in second person, I think would be melodramatic in any other circumstances when you're doing like, you sit down at the controls, you, it just seems like just really overblown. But because this is such a real life situation, it actually pulls you into the um, scenario. I think it points out something else about being an air traffic controller that I'd never really thought about. But in addition to being... A number of skill sets I can mention that we don't need to, that you need for that. The one you don't think about is an empathetic bedside manner for this possible scenario. Yeah, a lot, 99% of the time you're going to be talking to an experienced pilot and you'd probably just the facts and give it mm-hmm. up. But at some point, you may need to guide someone in mm-hmm. a terrible situation. Yeah. And he struggles with that. He yeah. doesn't have that skill set. And what I love about that is not only do we find out he, he, he doesn't have it, but we kind of watch him struggle with the fact that he doesn't have that skill set. Yeah, yeah. And he has to tell himself, 
this i want to scream at him you yeah. idiot but that's not the right thing to do you know I'll just keep on, don't talk <laughs> right. acknowledge right. what what right. does that mean <laughs> what does that mean what do you mean what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> there's also that great moment where he has to go outside to listen for the actual sound of the engine oh uh, you know what the great piece of writing is yeah, there the, the flick of the cigarette yeah and you realize he's standing out there smoking. Again, and I brought this up before, there are moments when you know you've got a great radio drama writer when they give you a piece that isn't beating you over the head with, picture this and giving it to you, that they give you a simple sentence that all of a sudden you see Everything. It, everything. You can see him. He's wearing a white dress shirt. Right. His tie is loosened up. The sleeves are rolled up. He's got the cigarette in the corner of his mouth. Yes. The headphones on, and he's the slumped night, over With there. just a sentence up, yeah. I flipped the cigarette and went back in. That bit of narration, too, though, it is so close and personal to him. I mean, all the details you're given are nose-to-nose with this guy, which is all works towards, and his performance, how much you are really based in him. You are totally sympathetic with his feelings, mm-hmm. with what he's doing. Um, and so, yeah, I thought the same thing with the cigarette of every little motion he goes through, you are there with him. And, and again, he has to authenticate it through sound. It is perfect for radio. Mm-hmm. He, still, he still can't see the plane. He has to go outside and listen for it, just like we're listening. Do you know what's great about that sound is how it wasn't obvious at first to us either. Mm-hmm. Like, it was distant enough where you go, am I hearing it? Oh, there it is. And then it got louder. You know, it mm-hmm. was just perfectly done. But... That idea of being smart enough as a writer to realize that you could have written that whole scene without that simple sentence of flick the cigarette, and we probably would have been fine, to be aware enough to write that in that you backtrack your last minute and repicture it yeah, all with That's the one last sentence. cigarette of a pack that You're he's right. already gone through having <laughs> yeah. this conversation. It was just beautifully done. Everything in this was beautifully done. I think the, the last little thing I want to point out and say yay was at the very end when it all goes back to normal, when all the voices come back and it's all the usual mm-hmm. chit-chat. Yeah, when he clears the channel for everybody. Yeah, you better yeah. hit the crash button. Yeah, and then everybody's cleared to the, I can't remember the phrase, but the emergency is over. If you listen carefully, you hear them saying, like, clear for landing, uh, flight 702. Like, they just go back yeah. to work. Because it's somewhere that plane is taking out something. <laughs> yeah. But that's not their job. They now have to move yeah. on to the other planes to keep them alive. Who have been circling and yeah. might be in trouble themselves at this point, yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay, I'm going to do a deep dive here, and I'm not suggesting that this was intended by the author, but if I were in college and I wanted to write a thesis on radio and old-time radio, I would use this episode. And this is just jumped out at me in, on my second listen, again, because it seems so perfect for the medium. I feel like in some ways it reflects both the promise and limitations of radio as a medium. Lovejoy's character tries to land a plane with nothing but the exchange of words, but ultimately the pilot can't ignore his other senses and fails the buy-in to the escape being offered. Nice. Uh, He can't Mm -hmm. trust the plane or the voice coming from the radio. Ken says he can get him to the runway, but I can't fly your airplane for you. It speaks to this collaborative nature of radio drama. And And podcast done. Good job. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Wow. Episode 122. <laughs> Finally got it. Well, I didn't think we'd make it this far, but it's weird to be done with the podcast. Yeah. We just... Somebody hit the crash button. <laughs> Very well stated, sir. 
I am going to go back to college just to write that paper <laughs> and see what happens. And when I get my C plus, <laughs> scrimshaw, let's, uh, let's send this to the vote. I'll start it uh, with, I always know that I'm about to give something that high mark of stands the test of time and a classic and all my love when I realize when I'm done listening that I have taken no notes. Wow. And that's happened about six times in our 122 episodes where I realized, oh, I forgot to write anything down. Writing down means usually I'm bugged. When I'm pulled out of the story, that's when I feel compelled to write notes for the podcast. I have none. Zero. I just, wow. I'd have to really uh, hit pause here and sit for an hour, but it very well could be in the top five, at least the top 10 of things I've ever heard. And I'd never heard this before. And thanks, Joshua. <laughs> Thank you for letting me hear this. Yeah, I, I will start with this is a classic. It is fantastic. The first time I listened to it, it had in my head the ghost of airplane and airport and all these yeah. other stories that are airport i kept coming into my head so i was a little standoffish so like okay we'll see how this plays out and if it's similar or not and i think that made me even more susceptible to the end hearing it in my head now like i love that plane crash (laughs) but i loved it it was really good yeah it's a classic for me um i just listened to it because it had frank lovejoy in it and i was just (laughs) shocked. I mean, I knew Frank Lovejoy was a great actor, but to hear him in a script of this caliber and all the production elements come together, it's just a classic. Really uh, well directed, too. Yeah. And to end it on a slightly lighter note, I listened to the opening uh, announcement from the second broadcast of this in uh, two years later in 1958, and according to William N. Robeson, after the initial broadcast of this play, Frank Lovejoy started taking flying lessons and went on to earn a private pilot's license, and he sort of suggested, to commemorate this, <laughs> uh, we've decided to present this story again, which seemed like the weirdest celebration, like inviting only divorced couples to your wedding, I guess. <laughs> Frank used to listen to this while he was flying. (laughs) The Dean Martin Airport. Uh, Yes. Because if you imagine Dean Martin in this, it gets a little less horrifying. (laughs) All right, well, I'm going to go down through them clouds. (laughs) You will have to eventually start steering again. It's a marshmallow world we live in. Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. You'll find other episodes of the podcast there. Information about our live shows. If you're in the Twin Cities area, check it out. You can find us live on stage doing old radio shows. You can also get a hold of us through various social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, You can comment on episodes, and there's a contact page if you want to send us a a longer message. Just let us know what you think. Yes, you can also go to iTunes and write a review because we love reviews. You can also uh, go to patreon.com slash themorals and support this podcast. We have all sorts of membership levels and rewards, and it's um, fun to give us money. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) And finally, I do want to say, because we forgot to mention it again, thank you, Matt, for sending a request. I love getting specific requests, but it's also fun to get a wide-open request and find something for somebody. So I hope you enjoyed it (laughs) as much as you can enjoy plane crashes. Uh, But it's really well done. Thank you, Matt. I would encourage our listeners, if you want to give us a wide-open request like that, that would be a lot of fun. Something that has these kind of specifics to it. You know, Let us try and dig that up for you 
Next time, it's Tim's pick, and we'll be doing The Lottery from NBC Short Story. Until then... Flight 209 are clear for Vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, roger. What's our Vector, Victor? 